So today we are blessed to have a guest speaker with us. Um, Dr. Christina Lasell Peterson is here to today, and uh, she, if she looks familiar to you at all, that is because she is Andrea Redfern's sister, and they definitely have a, a family resemblance. Um, uh, Christina is a professor at Houghton College, a, a Christian college. Uh, she is the, the professor of religious studies, correct? Or, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, we are very happy to have her here with us today, so let's welcome her up. on Luke 7, and we're going to get there in a minute. But um, I want to just start with a, there's a story that used to get told in my in-laws family all the time about my brother-in-law when he was a little boy. You know, he would help his dad with projects. And maybe you've experienced this, you're doing a little carpentry around your house or whatever, and dad, what's this? Dad, what are you doing now? Dad, why did you do this like that? And finally, after a long pause of queries, in his queries, he said, Dad, can I ask you a question? <laughs> like, you're asking a million questions. What are you talking about? Um, but we know that kids, they're shameless about questions, right? That's how they learn about the world. But the question is, when we get to be adults, Sometimes we feel like we have to just have the answers. We have to have the answers. We have to know what's going on. We have to be able to tell people uh, everything about the faith, and we have to know everything. So I think we need to step back and be kids today and think about questions. And there's lots of times in Scripture, I'm sure many of you know this, there's lots of times where people are asking questions, and, and often fairly profound questions. And during Jesus' ministry, he asks lots of questions. People ask him lots of questions. He also asks questions. But people ask him questions, some of which are honest, some are not. But the one that I want to focus on today is John the Baptist's question. John is languishing in prison. Jesus is outperforming miracles. And John sends his disciples to Jesus. And here's Luke's, Luke's description. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So John summoned all the miracles that Jesus was doing. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to, to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? When the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? Jesus had then cured 
many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and have given sight to many who are blind. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, obviously, there's a lot of ways we can read this text. There's a lot of ways to be challenged and to be encouraged. That's the beauty of scripture. You, you can never exhaust the meanings. But today, I just want to think about this question together. Why does John ask the question? Here's the first prophet that Israel has known in hundreds of years. Someone with a lot of authority and tremendous popularity. And isn't he the guy who saw Jesus from afar and said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Didn't he almost refuse to baptize Jesus because he recognized the holiness of this person? No, you shouldn't baptize me. Don't, you know, I can't, I'm not even worthy to touch your sandals. And here he is asking this question. And I think we could probably try to explain away his question by suggesting maybe John just wanted his disciples to hear it from Jesus' mouth. He's trying to give his disciples a little lesson. Or maybe John was watching out for Jesus in his ministry and he wanted to give Jesus an opportunity to say these things out loud. But I think the most straightforward reading of this passage is that John is simply asking a real question. He's a real person, someone who's unsettled and needs reassurance from Jesus. And in his response, Jesus seems to take John's question very seriously. So why does John ask, are you the one? John may have been sharing the hopes of all the rest of the Jewish people who lived in Jesus' time. They thought the Messiah would come, restore the purity of Jewish worship, clean up temple practices, all those great things. Put an end to the corruption of the priesthood, renew people's obedience to the Torah. John, along with the others of his day, had an idea about how the Messiah would act. He would stun the political adversaries like David did with displays of power. He would throw out the Romans, restore the glory days of Israel. Maybe John had uh, approved of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, but now that Jesus was not preparing for coronation, maybe John really just wondered, are you the one then? Or should we expect someone else? And to me, that raises the question of what sorts of cultural expectations do we have about how God should act? What if God doesn't meet our demands? What if God isn't who we thought? Are you the one? I think another, probably, question for John was Jesus' ministry approach. John, no doubt, expected Jesus to bring judgment to the Jewish people. He said things like, you know, the one coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he's going to burn the chaff, right? John is like this Old Testament prophet who's going to talk about judgment. And he thinks the one coming after him is going to do the same. All he predicted doesn't seem to be coming true. 
Jesus comes along and he's offering forgiveness to all sorts of people. And he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. The sinners, the very people that John was speaking judgment over. We have a lot of judgmentalism in our churches, right? I mean, the, the way you, you look at how our culture views the church in movies or TV shows, right? There's a lot of judgment and almost gleefulness about the judgment that God is going to wreak on the sinfulness of our society. And I'm not saying John was wrong, but Jesus doesn't come with the judgment that John thought he was going to, you know, wield. Maybe he thought Jesus was too soft and compassionate. Are you really the one I was talking about? Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So, are we ever in John's place? Are we like the religious folks of Jesus' day where we want God to speak judgment on the people in our society we think are really not honoring God? Do we sometimes think we know exactly how God acts or should act in this world? And then we're disappointed because God doesn't come through? Maybe we want God to be more swift with his punishment in his war against evil. As long as it's with other people and not with us. Maybe we think God is, quote, on our side in whatever cause we undertake. I worked at a street mission for a while, and I remember a particularly harsh day where the street people's stories just broke my heart. The depth of their abandonment sort of staggered my imagination. For instance, it had never occurred to me that women who live on the streets are regularly raped. I don't know why that had never occurred to me. And I remember being back in my room just thinking, how can it be that no one cares about this? How can it be that God apparently doesn't care about this? Who are you, God, that you allow this kind of misery in this world? How can you allow evil to ruin human lives the way we see it happening? Who are you anyway? Who thought up this world? Are you the one you say you are, or should we wait for someone else? And sometimes I think these questions, it's hard questions. There's a lot of suffering in the world. We know that. But if John the Baptist can ask the question, then we can ask this question. God is big enough to welcome our questions. You may be thinking, but isn't this like doubt? And isn't doubt bad? Won't it cause us to abandon our faith and wander away? And I'm certainly not advocating that we, uh, <laughs> that we doubt and we wander away. But offering a reminder that questions, deep, profound, life-shaking kinds of questions are okay to direct to God. We don't really know everything about God. We really can't prove God's size or shape like a mathematical formula. God is much bigger than a simple set of facts, thankfully, and will continue to delight us and baffle us and comfort us and confound us until the end of our lives. It's okay to admit that faith often involves questions and doubting and seeking and yearning 
for understanding. We're not alone in this, obviously. Obviously, John the Baptist had his questions, but I love Matthew 28, where Jesus has been risen and he's wandered around for 40 days and he's been teaching them and he, he goes up on the mountain and he calls his followers and he's going to lay on them their job. We call it the Great Commission. But there's this little verse, um, Matthew 28, 17. Jesus appears to them and they saw him and Matthew says, when they saw him, they worshipped him and some doubted. <laughs> They're looking at the risen Jesus. And some doubted. And the beauty of this passage is that Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, all you doubters over here and all you super faithful Christians, I'm going to give you the great commission, you know, go do the thing. He's got a bunch of people, some of whom are doubting, and he says, go into all the world, Right? He doesn't judge them. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't say, oh, you're just kind of weak, aren't you? You're not a very good Christian. He just commissions them. Just like he doesn't say to John, oh, come on, you should know by now who I am. Are you kidding me? He accepts John's question and answers it for real. Doubt is not only a common phenomenon in the life of faith, but it can play a really important role. Some of you probably have experienced this. It's in the times of our doubting and our questioning that faith has a chance to be exercised, to flex, to grow. We shouldn't be ashamed of our honest questions, but take them, like John did, to the one who can answer. Asking them, God gives God the chance to communicate with us in new ways. In ways that we've never even dreamed of. I mean, think of Job. Job, the guy who has all the horrible things happening to him, and he, he keeps asking God, why is this happening? And please show up. I want to have this conversation with you. I want some answers. And God doesn't answer, but God does show up. The answer that God gives is presence. God's presence with him. Why am I going through this? Well, you may not know, but God wants to be there. So there's this question of Christ's identity that, that John raises, that we might raise as we seek to know. Who is God? What is God like? What is God like in the face of a global pandemic, for instance? What is going on? And where's, where's this sovereign God who's taking care of everything? But I think there's another way we can understand God's question, John's question. Maybe it's rooted in his situation, and his situation is one of personal despair. He's in prison. He probably has an inkling that he's not going to make it out of prison alive. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus about his identity, because he may have been asking in his heart, if you're the Messiah, why am I rotting here in this jail? If you're the, my relative and the Messiah, why don't you save me? Besides, wouldn't Jesus want this wildly popular prophet on his side out there doing ministry with him, promoting his cause? None of it makes any sense. And that, that feeling when we, we get to that moment of nothing makes sense, that's where John may have been. Obviously, lots of times in human life, 
our lives tangle around and nothing seems to make sense. And we're often left with the question, where are you, God? What are you doing? God in those dark times seems unpredictable or even completely absent. Like the psalmist, we can find ourselves crying, and this is from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, how long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And we know theologically God doesn't like hide his face from us. But it's the sensation of being human in relationship with God that sometimes it feels like God is hiding his face from us. But thankfully we don't have to pretend that everything's okay. If, the, if John can ask, if the people on the Mount of, of um, the Great Commission can ask and doubt, Job and even the psalmists, we can ask, why does God feel so far away? For one thing, I think differing sensations of intimacy are part of being human, right? Part of all of our relationships. I teach college students, so I say, you know, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're delighted by your roommate or your spouse or your children or whatever, and everything is wonderful. And sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're like, ah, the way they walk into the room bugs me, right? We, we're, we're like that as human beings. We don't have a, a completely static state existence with anybody else, even with ourselves. Sometimes we're happy with ourselves. And sometimes everything we do seems horrible and we're, we're really mad at ourselves. We go up and down in our relationships in all of our relationships, even including our sensations of God. It's unrealistic, not to mention guilt-inducing, to say that all of our other relationships, you know, there's all the vicissitudes of emotions, but with God, it all has to be maximum all the time. Not going to happen. We don't escape the normal undulation of human emotion and intention just because we are Christians. On the other hand, sometimes God feels distant because we haven't been paying attention, right? We're not really listening to what God seeks to express to us. You know, there's these images in the Old Testament prophets, and I think of Isaiah 65. He says, God stands all day long with arms outstretched, but the people did not want God's embrace. Kind of like those awkward moments, maybe even worse now with COVID, nobody knows whether they're gonna hug or not, and you're, you put your arms out, and then you realize the other person isn't gonna embrace you, and you're kind of like, oh yeah, whatever. But Isaiah is saying, that's God. God is shamed and, and sad, seeking to embrace, and the people just don't care. Or perhaps it's just that we're, too, our lives are too hectic, and we've shut out that still, small voice. I remember one of my college friends, her, his daughter was like four, maybe, and he says, you know, there's so many things I'd like to tell this kid, but she's moving all the time. She's like, two seconds here, and then she's somewhere else. I was like, ugh, that might be what God says about me, right? The, the hectic nature, and can't just sit and listen. I think sometimes we're just too overwhelmed with grief or pain to hear what God is trying to say to us. Maybe some of you have seen the BBC version of Shadowlands, which is the story of C.S. Lewis's marriage to and then his loss of his wife, Joy Davidman. 
And in the, this film, the, uh, you know, his wife dies, and he's coming out of the church, and the minister says to him, uh, it's important for him to hold on to his faith. And Lewis says, faith in what? I turned to God, and all I found was a door slammed in my face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting. After that, silence. And that can be what grief feels like, right? It feels like you're just in, shut in this tomb, and God is not there. And of course, Lewis comes to realize later that the door was locked from the inside. It was his grief that had locked God out. It's like that old footprints poster. We're often really unaware of God's presence and the fact that God is carrying us in gentle arms. Sometimes, though, it isn't because we're ignoring God or because we are blinded by overwhelming circumstances in our lives or grief. Sometimes, like the, like the psalmist, there seems to be no particular reason why God feels so distant. Our prayers seem to go nowhere, which is some, something the writer of Lamentations also says. Uh, in Lamentations 3.44, it says, God, you have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. And it's just this beautiful image, right? It's, it's not theologically correct. God doesn't put on armor and keep our prayers out. But the sensation of God being wrapped in a cloud and our prayers, we, we sometimes say it, our, I, I felt like my prayers were just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. Does God allow us to walk through what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul to make our faith real? Christian writers through the centuries wrote of this experience, and particularly Catholic writers. And I, I think it's because as Protestants we've been taught to sort of be able to defend our faith and speak our faith, and that's all really great, but sometimes it turns into I must have all the answers all the time. So there are these writers, spiritual writers in the history of the church that talked about this experience as a normal place in the life of faith. In fact, they called it the Deus Absconditus, the, the God who hides, and affirmed that God intended good from these desert times in our lives. There's a medieval woman, Mechthild of Magdeburg, for instance, who described it with this allegory. She says, the soul enters darkness and feels nothing of the love of God. And then these are her words. Then came unbelief, wrapping me in such darkness and howling after me in such a wild and vehement manner that his voice made me tremble with horror. Then the heavenly father spoke to the soul. Think of what you felt and saw when there was no thing interposed between you and me. Kind of like when the psalmist says, remember the songs in the night that you learned in the light. She encourages us, Mechthild encourages us to remember the sweetness of communion with God when we're enduring God's bitter absence. We remember those songs and we sing them in the dark. And we sing them with and for each other. The choice to do this means the deepening of our faith. Mechthild even got to the point where she could say, God's withdrawal is dearer to me than his very self, which is a weird thing to say, right? How could God's withdrawal be dearer than God's presence? And it was because she felt like now I'm exercising my faith. Now I'm choosing to orient myself 
to this God who loves me. Stripped from all the things that would make it easy, I'm still choosing this. Martin Luther describes it this way. He says these dark times are kind of like you're standing in the Holy of Holies, like there used to be in the temple in, in, in ancient Israel. And the light has gone out. And you're in this space. It's dark. There's no light. There's no music. There's no movement. And you still choose to say, I follow. I believe. I love you, God. Sometimes faith is merely choosing to believe in the face of our uncertainty. It's a reasonable choice, but it's still a choice that we have to make. We simply decide to believe, even if God hasn't stunned us lately with blinding light or given us audible invitations or whatever it is that we want, what sign we wish we had from God. I think maybe this, this writer, Mechthild, also was recognizing when she said God's absence is, is dearer than his presence, maybe she was glad because it reminded her that God is not her little pet who comes when she calls. He's not the cosmic vending machine where you stick in your quarters and you press F5 and you get a Snickers. Once, one of my church friends, we were just having a conversation, a couple of years, we were, we were a couple of years out of college, and, and he said, you know, I'm almost 30 years old, and I don't have a house, and I don't have a nice car, and I'm like working at a mattress store in the mall. I was like, ooh, <laughs> he seriously thinks because he went on some missions trips when he was in college and he did door-to-door -door evangelism that somehow God owes him something. And sometimes we feel it just like the cosmos owes us something at certain stages in life. I'm, I'm owed an empty nest or I'm owed, you know, nice children with nothing wrong or I'm owed what... Nobody owes us anything, right? And God, least of all, God has already done everything. Sometimes we need to be reminded that God promises faithful, faithfulness to us, but we don't get to determine the shape that it takes. God's not on our leash. Richard Foster suggests, sort of thinking about this idea, in the very act of hiddenness, God is slowly weaning us of fashioning God in our own image. Like Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, God is wild and free and comes at will. By refusing to be a puppet on our string or a genie in our bottle, God frees us from our false idolatrous images. That always speaks to me, and I wonder how many of us need to be freed from the image of God as excuse me, convenient to us. the automatic blessing God, the instant gratification God. How many of us need to be freed from idolatrous images of ourselves as well? Maybe the dark times are intended to renew our humility before the mysterious and hidden yet supremely loving God. Maybe God's absence can be seen as a good thing because it creates in us a longing, a yearning, a seeking that's good for the soul. Another medieval woman writer, Beatrice of Nazareth, said, the very lack of satisfaction heals the soul, and the wound gives it health. Absence already contains the promise of presence. 
our yearning points to God's eventual union with us, is what she's saying. She wrote of yearning to be united with Christ in love, but she remained unsatisfied, tortured even, as she waited. Like the psalmist, she cried out to God as in a dry and weary land. But the yearning itself is part of faith. That's part of the encouragement of it. When we're yearning and when God seems silent, it's not that we don't have faith, we're waiting. And that is part of faith. Emily Dickinson puts it this way, that the lack itself can teach us the sweetness. And she has this little poem, Water is taught by thirst, Land by the ocean's past, Transport by throw, Peace by battles told, Love by memorial mold, and this is one I love, birds by the snow, right? When the absence of, of all the birds at the feet are you, you remember and long for spring. The yearning itself reminds us that we're on our way somewhere else. The yearning itself can renew and give us strength. And it's kind of like the spirituals, the African-American spirituals, right? The, the longing for the beyond. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. What we don't possess, we look forward to. So if God draws us down the road, and sometimes the road is really dark, how do we handle it? Thomas Kempis observed that many praise and bless Jesus so long as they receive consolation from him. But if Jesus hide himself and leave them there for a brief time, they begin to complain and become overly despondent in mind. And he complains, he's like, uh, Jesus went all the way to the cross for you. You can't even go through a little dark time? If we don't like <laughs> that response, what should our response be? And I think there's no one-size-fits-all spirituality. I'm sure many of you know that. Jesus himself interacted differently with different people in the course of his ministry. But I think there are a few things to help us along the road. And one of them is to get a bigger picture. Sometimes the narrow walls of our own soul are not enough. We need to ask, what is God doing in this community? What is God doing in the lives of the people around me? What is God doing in this world? We're part of this huge story, one that stretches from creation until the end of time. And God has invited us to participate in this large drama. In his book, With Burning Hearts, Henry Nouwen notes that the Eucharist calls us to be continuously aware of our role in the sacred story of God's redemptive presence through all generations. The great temptation of our lives is to deny our role as chosen people, and so allow ourselves to be trapped in the worries of our daily lives. Without the word that keeps lifting us up as God's chosen people, we remain or become small people, stuck in the complaints that emerge from our daily struggle to survive. Without the word, we remain little people with little concerns who live little lives and die little deaths, says Nowen. So, engaging in the big drama of God. I think it's often in the following and in the obedience itself that we remember that we're disciples. We engage in spiritual disciplines, not to win brownie points with God, but to open our hearts up again to God and to grace and to love. 
This might include private prayer and meditation on scripture, even when we don't feel like it, participating in public worship, but also the discipline of reaching out to other people, people who are lonely, who are desperate, who could use a cheerful word or a, a caring act. Sometimes faith emerges in the doing, in the following. Sometimes it feels like dry obedience, but we're learning how to take our eyes off ourselves and lean into the love of God. Obviously, we don't want to go to the other extreme and engage in mindless activism and think that that's good enough, a good substitute for faith, because it never is. But we know God. We become followers as we obey, as we imitate the one who came in love for us. So sometimes it just takes engaging. On the other side, though, sometimes it just takes waiting. The writer of Lamentations, again, says this, The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is my wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I think this waiting is really hard. I remember the first time I heard those words from Milton. They also serve who, also, who only stand and wait. I was like, oh, Lord, don't let that be me. I, I'm really bad at just waiting. But sometimes that's all there is, right? Sometimes we're engaging in the means of grace and devotions and public worship and fellowship, even service to God, and yet we feel stuck. Sometimes there's nothing to do but hang on and wait. Bernardo Clairvaux wrote, Oh my God, the deep calls to the deep. The deep of my profound misery calls to the deep of your infinite mercy in my waiting. And God is the one who hears our cries. For six months, I worked with refugees in a little village about an hour away from the Alps. It's in Austria. And the funny thing was, you couldn't see the mountains at all. There was this weird, hazy thing. They had a special word for it. So it just looked like rolling hills. And at first, it was like, every day I'm out there looking to see if you can see the mountains today. Because they're like, when the, when the, when the atmospheric um, conditions are right, you'll be able to see all the mountains. It's really beautiful. So every day I'm out there looking. Week after week goes by, never saw the mountains. Months went by, I stopped even looking. Right? I just walk out. So one morning, I, I was in a hurry. I, on my way somewhere, I burst out of my door. And halfway around the town, the mountains, with sun beating off freshly fallen snow. It was, it was unbelievable. They had been there the whole time, but I couldn't see. And that has become a metaphor for what faith is. The mountains are always there. Sometimes the conditions are right and you see them in a dazzling glory, but most of the time not. Sometimes we have to live in the haze for a while, waiting for God. 
And after all of our questions and all of our doubts and all of our lonely cries to God, how long, O oh Lord, how long? God will come. God will renew our hope in gentle nudges or in moments of stunning clarity, which we should press to our souls and take them with us into whatever we face. Let's pray together. Gracious God, for those of us who wonder if you are or who you are, wrap us in your gentle presence. For those of us who are too busy to hear your voice or too overwhelmed by the stuff of our lives, tap a little more loudly. For those who simply can't see through the darkness that they're in, teach, teach them, teach us patience the humility, that faith that holds on when all is still and dark and quiet. Refresh us with a new sense of your presence. And for all of us, as we interact with each other, help us to honestly tell and lovingly listen to the struggles of each other's souls. May we hold your light for one another. May we be the arms of your embrace. Amen. <laughs>